0: All right. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. And even if it's a familiar one that, that you've memorized and said a couple times, hang with me, keep your hand in the Bible, because we're going to be kind of looking all around, the context all around it. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, fearfulness, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. Let's pray yeah I'd, uh thank you for your word thank you for giving it to us for having Paul write it down in a in a jail cell at the towards the end of his life yeah we just thank you so much we want to revere your word we want to worship you this morning and uh <clears throat> most of all God we want to hear from you so i ask as as Paul did in ephesians six that uh You would give me the words to say that I would have the boldness to speak and to utter that which you would have me to. And uh, not my own thoughts or words. Help us to be open before your word as it's opened up before us. And to be changed in your presence today in Jesus' name. Amen. So, why this text? We got at least three problems to face right at the beginning. Uh, one is our familiarity with the text. I mentioned that a while ago. You might have memorized it i don 't know about y'all, but growing up, it was like our kind of like our test if it 's of fear it 's not a god. you know and we 'd have that one quoted to us, especially like at nighttime, if we were fearful in our family we try to try to do the same. but sometimes our familiarity with uh, a verse, especially, can breed some misunderstanding and you're probably guessing that by now you might be used to preachers like busting your bubble and you know taking one of your favorite verses and and then showing you how it's been misused out of context Uh, I'm not going to say we're going to do that this morning but just look out for it okay (laughs) Uh, and and really my question for you about that familiarity is even though we're familiar with it are we using it rightly are we using it well and then Uh, Along those same lines, we want to look at a couple different categories of fear. In 2 Corinthians, you can write this down if you're taking notes. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Paul describes two different kinds of fears. And he's talking about being greeted on the way from Macedonia with with opposition from without and fears within. And uh, he has a way of contrasting things like that. Greeting, like being welcomed with fear. And not only fear within themselves, in their own heart, to proclaim the gospel, but people really making them fearful. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at how sometimes maybe when we read this, we don't see those different categories of fear. We just think fear more broadly. But I'm going to make a case this morning that it's a different kind of fear that Paul's really referencing in this whole letter. And then the personal nature of the letter. You know, this this name, the pastoral letters, uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. They've become known as the pastoral letters. And so sometimes you expect to hear something like this preached at a pastor's conference, an ordination service, uh, maybe in a series leading up to installing new elders or something like that. But the guy who actually came up with the name pastoral epistles, uh, Paul Anton in the 18th century, he actually didn't mean for it to exclude the church. In his mind, when he says, Pastor, it can't be disconnected from the congregation. And you can think about it, too. What, why else would they be in the canon of Scripture if they weren't for everyone? So sometimes we can kind of ignore these texts because we thought, oh, he's talking just specifically to Paul. Yes, he is. I mean, Paul is specifically talking to Timothy but and and Titus and Titus, but He's also talking to the church, in this case, the church at Ephesus, and for us today. So keep, a, keep an eye out for those issues as we go along. So where are we going this morning? Uh, I think it's DA's da, uh, D.A. Carson's dad who said, uh, A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Have I told you all that one? <laughs> So you might want to write it down because, you know, you're like, what? That's a lot of text. But uh, it, it really makes sense once, once we break it down. A text without a context is a pretext for proof pretext. What does that mean? A text, like a verse, without a context, like the surrounding two or three verses before it and after it, and even the entire letter that it comes in, is a pretext. It's like the, the grounds for misuse. A proof text. A proof text is one of those cases where you steal that one verse and say, "Oh, this is the reason I do things this way," even if it doesn't mean that. So your proof text is not good. We don't want to be proof texting. But a text without a pretext is a uh, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Okay, got it. So this morning we're going to look at kind of three layers of context. The first one is this chapter one, actually, kind of this immediate surrounding. Then the whole letter of 2 Timothy. We're not going to read it all. We're not going to go through it all, but the whole letter, uh, that context. And then finally, the broader mission of God. What, is, what was God up to with Paul and these churches? It affected a bigger thing that God was up to in the world. So as we look at this singular verse, we're going to look you know, even more specifically at the things that it says at, specifically at fear and then that contrasts with power, love and a sound mind or some, some say self-discipline uh, this one says sound judgment um, we're kind of going to take an approach that's like a tale of two churches you've probably all heard of a tale of two cities and that uh, we're not going to compare Ephesus to all's but we are gonna look at some differences and similarities in them. But really we wanna look at both in this like, what do they look like when they're operating primarily out of fear? And what do they look like when they're characterized by power, love, and a sound mind, the gifts that God actually did give us. So to do that, we're gonna jump into a little bit of the backstory of the letter, of how it came about, of who it was sent to, of why it was sent. Um, and so we'll get into a little bit of the history at Ephesus, but also we wanna get into the context of Olds, The context of the letter, its meaning, all that, but then the context of that church and the context of Olds, so that we can relate more, more clearly and also so that we can apply that meaning to our lives. So, if you don't mind, I'm going to be speaking to you this morning about some, some stuff that I, I feel like you may or may not uh, feel like it's more for an insider to speak about rather than a guest. Excuse me. <clears throat> and so ahead of time, I ask for your grace that you would extend it to me. Uh, because I, I do believe it's God's word and, and not my ideas or my own that I'm speaking and, uh, and then, uh, of course, judge it by God's word. Uh, but I want to talk about two major emotions that I feel like ALDS has been struggling with. and One is fear, and I think we've all been struggling with that. It's not specific to ALDS. Um, we'll get into that a little bit later, but also excitement. So it's kind of like two ends of the, of the spectrum, you know, swinging back and forth. The excitement, that may be the prospect of finding a pastor. A shepherd who would come and serve here, but then also the fear of all sorts of things, uh, not not necessarily related with the church, but just our daily life. And so it can be it can be jarring, disorienting when we go from one extreme to the other. And we're going to see that Ephesus actually had a very similar situation. They went pastorless for a number of years, and Paul. St. Timothy, the guy he calls his spiritual son, like, this guy comes highly recommended. If you read uh, Philippians, there's like nearly half a chapter where he's just commending Paul about how he lives just like me, and we both try to live just like Jesus, and he's poured his life out for you, and he's served you. And this is just one local church among the many that they went and served. And he's the one that Paul hand-selects to send back into Ephesus. So they're excited. Who wouldn't be? You know, this is the, the Apostle Paul sending the Timothy to your church. But at the same time, they had a lot, of deer, uh, a lot of fear to deal with. So I want you to imagine with me that it's a few hours before now. And you can close your eyes if it helps you, but don't fall asleep. <laughs> but we're traveling back in time, okay, really far back, and somewhere to around AD 64. And so you're waking up, it's, it's Sunday, the Lord's Day, you're getting prepared for church. Wasn't an iPhone, you know, that woke you up or an alarm clock at all, probably some roosters. Um, it's hot and dry, that's not too hard to imagine for us, maybe right right now in this moment, but it gets pretty hot here. But the difference is it's super dry. We don't, we don't really know what that's about here. It's, you know, hot and muggy. But in Ephesus, it was hot and dry. You can imagine probably quite a lot of sweat. And uh, your city, as you're walking to church, as you've got your family prepared and you're going, either on, on foot or horse or donkey, you see this big, huge, bustling city. Like, it's totally different than Downsville. It's a seaport, and you you hear ships rolling in at the dock. You hear uh, just merchants screaming and yelling, trying to sell things, fishermen coming in and out. And you even hear, in the city itself, you hear clanging of hammers on metal. You hear all kinds of coppersmiths working and you even hear like the fires, you know, starting up and and blowing, and it's a big bustling city. And then you know, just before you get to the gathering, you see this giant statue of the idol Artemis. This is a false goddess that they worshipped in it. It was enormous. It's still enormous. It's like one of those. I don't think it's one considered one of the wonders of the world, but it's one of those historic sites. It's huge. And the Ephesians are passing by on it their, on their way to, to church. You know, this is what our city's about. This is what they represent idol worship. And especially things that are particularly nasty and sexual in nature. So now imagine you've made it to church, past all that noise, all that stuff that might even strike fear into you. And. If you had your eyes closed, I don't think I did have any takers on that one. But if you did, you can open them now, because that's kind of where the major differences stop. And now we'll look at some of the similarities. You've made it here, and Paul sent a letter. Everyone's excited to hear what Paul has to say. And it's likely going to be read by Timothy himself, a guy who some believe probably... uh, About my age. Pretty much everyone agrees on it. About my age, 33, 34, somewhere in there. Um, Maybe about my size. This is debatable, but kind of puny, somewhat argue. And here he is preparing to speak from not just the mouth of Paul or the pen of Paul, but the mouth of God because this is inspired word. Now we had to imagine all that other stuff because it's so different, but there are quite a few similarities too. I mentioned the fact that they went pastorless for a while. Uh, if you look back in 1 Timothy, um, I, we're not going to necessarily turn there, but you can. Uh, Paul calls out two false teachers and actually tells them, hey, let's communicate them from the church. They're speaking false doctrine. They're, they're leading people astray. Well, he does the same thing in Second Timothy, another two. And if you even go back further into Acts 18, 19, I think it's 20 or 21, where Paul's, uh, you know, he's establishing the church in 18 and 19. In 20 or 21, he, he takes this detour uh, because he wasn't planning on stopping in Ephesus, but he stops on this island nearby it and calls for elders and some of the leaders to come. And he gives them this awesome service. It sounds a lot like this letter. But he tells them there, he says like, hey, you're gonna have false, teacher, false teachers rise from within you. Now, I don't think that's a similarity with all, so that you have false teachers <laughs> rising from within you, but they had a lot to fear. Much like today, we have a lot of opposition, a lot of fear. So they had the excitement, not only of having direct correspondence with Paul, not only having his like, number one protege, Timothy, but they also had fear, you know. They had the statues, the idols they dealt with, idols to Dionysus where they would just drink wine until they were, you know, crazy and, and do unheard of things. And yet this is what they had to look forward to as they, as they went to, to the Lord's house. And I think you'll see as we're reading this letter that this is not just meant for Timothy. This is meant for all the Ephesians to hear. It's personal, and it's intimate, but it's intimate as a group. So I want us to look at it from that angle. Now I want to make a case real quick, in case you're used to reading it that way—that it's just for Timothy—that you think Paul is telling Timothy to stir up the fan, uh, the fan the flames of the gifts that God's put in you, uh, the gifts of power, love, and sound mind, and flee fear. If you think that's just for Timothy, we're going to read about 14 verses, rapid fire, okay? So that you can hear the words us, (laughs) and so that you can hear that the main thrust of the letter, because remember, he's writing for this to be read aloud, for the whole church to hear, that it's for everyone to hear. And we're going to look at categories of fear. He's going to talk about the words fear and shame and ashamed. Uh, but he's also going to talk about the object of fear, what to be fearful for, and that's the suffering, the sure enough suffering that's coming. So starting in chapter 1, got verse 7. And again, notice how many times we see the word ashamed. Uh, Verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Verse 12. For this reason... I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know who, in whom I, I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Verse 15, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia, all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagelus and Hermogenes, two of those guys we mentioned a while ago. Verse 16, this is like a positive example. Lord, grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. That's just the first chapter. So you can, you can kind of put a tick by these if you want as we're going. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, a warning to be strong. Don't fear as you're entering su- suffering headfirst. It says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men, who are able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Verses 8 and 9, similar warning. For which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Verse 15, back to that key word, ashamed. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who need not be uh, excuse me, who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Verses 24 and 25, more warning that you will suffer. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Should I keep going? <laughs> I, I'll, I'll quit reading the verses and I'll just let you know where the rest are found. Chapter 3, verse 11, which is persecutions and sufferings. Chapter 4, verse 6, uh, it says Paul is being poured out as a drink offering. Even as he writes a letter, he's preparing to die. Verse 10, he lists off a group of people who just straight up left him. Pretty rough. Just They all deserted him. He even uses that language. They have deserted me. Verses 14 and 15. Uh, this guy, Alexander the Coppersmith, one of those noisy guys we heard before, he's caused him a lot of trouble. Watch out for him. He'll cause you trouble too, for sure. Verse 16. At my first defense, no one supported me, everybody abandoned me. Verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to the heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So he will rescue and vindicate him from that suffering. So, 14 rapid fire verses to let you see that not only are we to fear uh, that fear that's within us more than the opposition outside, but we're to deal with that fear to give it to the Father. And also, that Paul's not just speaking to Timothy, he's speaking to all of us. So the personal nature is, is there, but it's also deliberately corporate. And if you need one more piece of evidence, let's look back, we just read this one, but let's look back again, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It's kind of like a mini Great Commission uh, passage here, where Paul's saying, everything I'm telling you, I intend for you to pass on. So it's not just for you; it's for everyone. Uh, you, therefore, my son, be—excuse me. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful, faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You know, some have made the case that Paul is fragile and, and weak—not just puny, but. They've, uh, they've got this from a number of different things in the text, um, but the case is pretty, pretty weak. And I don't know if you know Alexander Begg, but um, I listened to him on this. He had preached this message like 20 years ago, preached from 2 Timothy. And um, it helped me hearing his perspective because his perspective had changed over those 20 years. From just listening to what the commentaries say to having lived it out a little bit. And he actually thinks Timothy is not a particularly cowardly person, but that we all probably struggle with this a little bit. He knocks down those oppositions, and, and I'll, I'll give you some of, the, some of the things he's working against here. Like, uh, you know, Paul suggests that Timothy drink some alcohol for his stomach issues. In the dry, hot heat, we probably all had stomach issues a time or two, <laughs> you know? So does that make you fragile and weak? Uh, probably not. Uh, and I've had, you know, been in different environments and had all kinds of stomach issues. Um, what about his youth? It mentions his youth several times. Well, let's look at it in context. Paul is actually kind of using his power and authority to help those people see that Timothy is in a place of leadership. And he's really 33, 35, somewhere in there. Uh, So that's actually not all that young. It's more of that culture revering elderly, which we could use some of today. And then lastly, what about being ashamed of the gospel? Why would would Paul leave this guy here? You know, with all this opposition, you got that big statue of Artemis just staring everybody down, just looming, cast a shadow everywhere you go. You've got false teachers within. You've got all these problems to deal with. Why send this guy who's particularly fearful of leading, of just manning up and telling people, hey, this is God's truth and this is where we're going. Well, I don't believe... He was, (laughs) and it helps have Alistair Begg backing me up a little bit. Um, You know, he reminds us of times when we've been ashamed of the gospel, and it's usually not outright. It's usually not, uh, you know, denying Jesus Christ publicly like like Peter did. It's usually something a lot more sly, like uh, slippery, something deceptive in our heart, like it's looking for a, a little artery a little channel to clot. I'll give you a couple of personal examples for myself. Uh, when, when I left uh, my job at the plant and was raising support to go into full-time ministry, I met with an old friend from childhood who had lost his mother to suicide. And I hadn't talked to him in many years. From what I knew of him, he was much younger, but he was a kind of what people would call an on-fire Christian. He would tell everybody about Jesus all the time. He was just excited for those opportunities. But since then, he had become an atheist. And when I called him, he was even hesitant to meet with me. He was like, you know what? I think what you're doing is probably ill-advised. I don't think you should be doing it in the first place. But uh, I'll meet with you if you promise me not to try to convert me. (laughs) And you know, I was like, I can't, I'm not going to do that. I can't agree to that. And he, he met anyway. Um, you know, I, I, and I told him on the phone and in person, like, you know, I love you. I'm I'm supposed to try to convert you. You know, I know the truth. I don't want you to, to perish, to die. Um, and, you know, during that conversation, he cut me off quite a few times. And believe it or not, I didn't want to debate uh, some, some people, those related to me, think I like to argue and debate. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe that's a fact. I don't know. I can't vouch for that. But in this moment, I didn't. <laughs> but he, he, uh, I mean, he wanted to vent, and it turned out good. He wanted to vent. I called him back, and uh, you know he did. He didn't feel right, important what we did. Uh, Thought it was wrong and gave me a little talking down a little bit about that. But then uh, I had to apologize to him because even while I did get to share the gospel that he knew very well uh, with him when we met, I noticed something in my heart since we had talked that would highlight all these good that, that our ministry would do for society. You know, hopefully someday we'll be teaching literacy so that they can read their own language and preserve their culture and... And, like, I, you know, just highlighting all these social implications. And those things are good, and they're all true, and it's not wrong to emphasize them. But uh, I felt that I was doing it to win him over. And I've, I feel that the Spirit had convicted me of that, and, I, you know, I shared that with him, that I was sorry that I had been ashamed to just put forth the gospel and just let it sit. And it kind of... Yeah, I'm assuming it was in one ear and out the other. I don't know. But on a more, like that's a one-on-one evangelism example. And I don't know if you have examples like that, but I can think of another one uh, when it comes to preaching. Like this week, <laughs> pretty recent. I, uh, I knew last Sunday what God uh, had laid on my heart to share and the text to share and these major components of, you know, fear and excitement, and how the text deals with it, but it was really hard to get started. It was, like, super hard. I kept calling Jared and a couple other people, you know, man, I've only got 10 commentaries. I need four more, (laughs) but no, it wasn't that extreme, but you know, I was asking, like, hey, can I get more information, more information? And that is good. You're supposed to be, as as this letter says, a workman that uh, need not to be ashamed because he's put that time in and he's trusted the Lord with the results. But uh, it is bad when it becomes a distraction. And since then, the, the Spirit did convict me and show me that, you know, I was even in the few times that I had gone and tried to write down my ideas that, I was even apologizing for talking to you about stuff like fear and excitement, and for some reason that was some big hurdle for me, maybe because I'm emotionally stilted (laughs) as an adult. Uh, I don't know why, honestly, but about that fear, let's just jump right into that. There's a fear even about talking about our fears, especially among Men, uh, you know, it's like, well, you can't change it one way or the other, so just, you know, deal with it, which is true. (laughs) Some of that's true. But on the other hand, like, you know, the message that we receive over and over and over is fear. Turn on Fox, and it's the end of the world, right? We're about two steps, we're about two tiny little tiptoe steps away from being Hitler's Germany. Or if you turn on MSNBC or CNN or any of the, like the other side, um, they're, they're not saying that. Everything's all good, right? <laughs> no. It's the end of the world. The sky is falling. Even when you like win or see something that's a victory, you immediately, as politicians, as news anchors, everybody, is rallying their constituents up into arms, like be excited, be frustrated. This is it, you know, if they take over again, they could ruin everything. So both sides agree on that tactic to to use fear. But it's not just in the political realm, realm, excuse me, there are real things to be fearful for. You know, COVID is real. We probably all know someone with COVID who has has died. Maybe not related to us, but we probably know someone pretty close. Uh, we all know the numbers of suicides that's gone up since that first lockdown. People being lonely, like Paul was in this letter. Please come and see me. Because I make every effort. That's what he says at the end of the letter. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, We'll get back to Paul, uh, but the point is to be made that the fear can be crippling, and that it often is, and we come in and out of it it's like this looming, huge idol, the statue that by it it orders our life that everywhere we go in Downsville and the states any even in the parts of the globe I'm connected with, it's the same way. people are just living in this constant fear like it. It can see, like, like it. Remember that statue, Artemis, like that. Like it's just a shadow looming over it. I mentioned that to my brother, and he thought of peanuts. Which one was it? Was it Linus that had the cloud of smoke? <laughs> but I, but I see it as even more doom, doom than that. You know, it's like uh, this thing we can't seem to shake. So. Instead of shrugging it off, instead of kind of ignoring it and putting it away, let's just face it. Let's look at, look at those fears and know that it is true that God hasn't given them to us. Uh, but that part of being human in a fallen world is to wrestle with fear. And then the way we wrestle is not man up, get over it, pretend it don't exist, ignore it. It's not any of that. It's to give it to the Father. And to give all of it to the Father. And to consistently give it to the Father. Say, like, I can't handle it. I'm, I'm literally desperate for you to help. I'm not strong. Uh, I'm not mentally prepared for this. Will you get me through this? And his spirit literally will come and take you through that fear. So while we're just talking about all this heavy, dark stuff real quick, let's pray and give it to the Father now. And then we'll move forward. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even in a time like this where we're hearing your word proclaimed, we can come to you with all our anxieties, all our fear. And not only can we come to you, you've made a way for that to happen. You came down uh, so that we would have direct access to your throne. And then you tell us to come boldly and confidently to your throne and to lay everything there for you to handle. God, we know we can't handle this stuff. We know we can't think our way, feel our way, act our way through it. It's only by your power that that we will persevere. But we do know that we can persevere and that we will get through because of you. Father, help us to take this immediate action of prayer every time we feel this rising up in our hearts or we hear it on the news or anywhere else. Help us to bring our fear to you and lay it there in Jesus' name. Amen. It's kind of funny, like in your announcements, you kind of preached <laughs> what I what I was going to preach. Uh, but you know, uh, our categories of fear are, are are need to be challenged a little bit. Just as Tim, like the, those things that uh, the Ephesian church were afraid of, uh, aren't altogether that different from the things. We're fearing, like our culture is telling us what to fear, our city, all that stuff, uh, politics, COVID, whatever it is, the future. Uh, but, you know, when you read all of these warnings, all of these do not be ashamed passages, those 14 or 15, depending on how you count it, that I read earlier, uh, you get the feeling that Paul is really telling this message that we've heard probably all from when we were little uh, don't be chicken <laughs> and, it, and he is he's saying that don't be chicken about the gospel don't be ashamed of, of Jesus there's even a, a part where he's saying even when we do this Christ will do that even when we do this Christ. and one of those things he says is even when we are unfaithful Christ will remain faithful and Christ is the one that, that will get us through it you know, we, we talked about our familiarity with the passage. Let, let's let back up one verse from verse 7 and get that uh, verse 6 in there. It says, Therefore I remind you to keep ablaze the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of, hand, of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fearfulness, but one of power, love, and a sound mind. So, it... It does sound kind of personal, but um, again, he says us, and we've already kind of kind of looked through all the ways that Paul's saying this is for everyone. But what is he saying to fight against that with? To fight against that fear? How do you do it? To fan the flame. Okay? What does that mean? Well, let's look at the vision of what Paul sees as a church who's operating out of power, love, and sound mind. And then We'll we'll get back into that, how we fan that flame. Uh, Actually, Paul has three pictures of what it looks like. um, And we can find that in 2, verses 1 through 7. Actually, we'll start in verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3 says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the recruiter. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not uh, crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to get a share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So, uh, John Matz was the first one I read that said this. Uh, You can think of this passage as like an acronym. It's FAST, F-A-S-T. A farmer. And it goes in reverse order. A farmer, an athlete, a soldier, and a, <laughs> and a teacher. So these, this is the way we teach. If you back up that verse right before it, it says, you know, gather these men who will be faithful witnesses and commit them to teach in this way. And you can see in each one of those a soldier who, you know, for love of country and self will go sacrifice and he's probably pretty powerful, he's been trained. But it says he doesn't get caught up in the things of the world. So that's what it means to have a sound mind. You can fight with and for love and power, but what does it mean to have a sound mind? You stay focused on the thing ahead. What about the farmer? You might think nurturing at first, love. You know, he, ta- he cares for those plants, he-, he picks them up, but each one of these is diligent. They stay focused on that task. and he. It says he's the first one that gets to take a share in the crop. And then an athlete, again, any athlete who's not waking up earlier than his competitor is losing. <laughs> he's losing daylight. He's losing in the competition. Don't matter if they're more athletic or not. The person who puts that work in, who's diligent, who has sound judgment to go, i not going to eat that today. I'm going to eat this. I'm going to work on this. And you see love, power, a sound mind through each one of these examples of what it means to be a teacher. But we're meant to be a people who are teaching, who are constantly uttering the things of Christ. So it's not just for the teachers. It's for us as a people to recognize that we ought to train. We ought to have that self-discipline. That we ought to operate in the power of God in a loving way. The power of God has to be in a loving way because god is love it's totally backwards from the way the world sees uh you know power in fact this letter is almost like an embarrassment in the in the world's eyes like if you look at uh chapter four uh let's see around verse six for i'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time for my departure is close i've fought the good fight i've finished the race i've kept the faith. This is, there is reserved for me in the future the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but all those who have loved his appearing. Here it is. Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas has deserted me because he loved the present world, and he has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me in ministry. I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus, when you come, bring the cloak I left in Troas with corpus, as well as the scrolls, especially the parchments. This is kind of sad. This is a guy in chains, in chains, lonely, totally lonely, cold and about to get colder. He's like, before winter gets here, grab that coat. You look at it like, almost in a comical way, as the three Bs, like he wanted his blankie, his coat, his overcoat his books, the parchments, and his buddy. He wanted Timothy. The world would see that as almost sad. You know, he's not flexing. He's not, you know, saying, I got this. Even though everyone deserted me, I don't care. I don't need nobody. It's the opposite of the way the world looks at power. And how did, how did Paul end up persevering to the end? How did he end up operating out of power? He, let, he lend the power that God gave him as an apostle at the beginning of this letter to Timothy so that everyone can see, yes, he's the one that has the power in the church to govern, provided he lives by these qualifications. He also said that it wasn't his apostleship, it was God. God chose him. And again, he doubles down on that like around verse 8. Uh, um, let's see. Yep. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Instead, sharing the suffering of the gospel, relying on the power of God. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Here it is. Not according to ours, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he has given to us in Christ Jesus before time again. So not only is he saying he's giving like his power over or his authority over to Timothy, And that Timothy is to exercise it carefully and with love and to raise up other leaders who will do the same. But he's only in that position because God chose him. God chose him. He didn't choose to be loved. He didn't choose to know Christ. Y'all remember the story of Paul, how that happened? And what about love? How How did he live out love? Well... You know, he says he's being prepared even now as a drink offering. And you could see this as a reference maybe back to Philippians where he talks about Jesus being poured out as a final drink offering uh, and him walking in, those, walking in those steps. But unlike Jesus, Jesus' sacrifice was for everyone. Paul, uh, he was poured out. Literally, his blood gushed out in front of the people who beheaded him, in front of the guards. And his concern, his last concerns that we have here, yeah, he says, Timothy, come see me at the end. But you have three chapters of this church can't fail. Take care, don't be ashamed, don't live in fear, live in power, live in love, in a sound mind. And what about Timothy? I didn't know this This may interest y'all. It's it's more than interesting to me. I never knew the end of his story, you know, as Paul Harvey would say the rest of the story, is that Paul faithfully served and, you know, from his 30s on into his 50s, John, the Apostle John, came. Some think that he may have brought Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's kind of neither here or there, but it's kind of interesting. He came and lived in Ephesus, for a while, and then he was you know, sent to the Isle of Patmos, and during that time, uh, the city continued to live in fear of all these idols. But <laughs> Timothy was on guard. Timothy fanned into flames. He reminded his people. He prayed. He stayed in the grace that was in Christ, that was given to him in Christ before the world began. He kept running back to that. He kept praying over it. He kept gathering those men around him fanning into flame, fanning into flame, getting that oxygen going so that they could be aware. Not just be aware, but be on guard. Not just be on guard, but hold fast to the truth. And not just that, but to proclaim the message. And his last message was probably about as powerful as it gets. It was, you know, fast forward another 30 years. And here he is, an octogenarian in his 80s. And, uh, it's recorded that, you know, this group was in masks and costumes, doing all kinds of nasty stuff, uh, you know, at the temple of Dionysus, a false God. And Timothy cried out among this mob, "Men of Ephesus, do not be mad for idols, but acknowledge the one true God." And with that, this powerful, I'm using that sarcastically, this cowardly crowd fell on him with mobs and clubs and beat this 80 year old. And as the other believers pulled his body away, two days later he died from the bruises. You can imagine the words that were being spoken. I don't think he was remembered as poor little frail Timothy. On his walker, I think he was one of these tough. You all probably know some tough eighty-year-olds, probably, right? I imagine Timothy was not some frail, puny guy. I imagine he was, uh, regardless of his physical stature, was remembered for probably that that sermon among countless others, week in and week out, and the city overrun, overrun with. Uh, Idol worship. What about the Ephesian church? You know, remember, we're supposed to be kind of getting into that backstory. Well, uh, it's more of a tra- tragedy. Turn with me to Revelation. Remember, John lived there for a while, and Jesus had a message for one of the churches that he had lived among and served in. He had seven letters in particular, and the first one, in chapter 2, is a letter to the church at Ephesus not a good one. The city just was overrun, a suffocating heap of idol worship. And uh, we know that at some point it died. And this uh, this was a warning from Revelation chapter 2. It says, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven gold lampstands, says, I know your words, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. You also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And it goes on with a few closing remarks. Do you hear even in that Jesus pleading with this church to repent? It actually sounds like this code of repentance and faith that Timothy gave to the the mob in his city. Turn, turn, repent. Like, not just repent for fear's sake, repent for God's sake. He wants you. He's coming after you. He's pursuing you. And today, Turkey is a wasteland. It's a gospel, and I don't mean that literally, I mean that spiritually. It's a gospel desert. Uh, Ephesus was on the western coast where tons of missionaries are stationed and serving today. Some among unreached people groups. We have a a friend, uh, actually a family, that has moved to join a team on the opposite corner in the East Coast uh, where there are several groups. We call them frontier people groups, the Laz and the Zaza, and many, many more like them who have never heard in history, never heard the name of Jesus Christ. And you had Paul and Timothy and Titus spread out through this nation. Let it, let it be a warning to us. Not only is it gospel-deprived, it, rem- it remains hostile to the gospel. It's illegal there to share the gospel. I've got, I've got one more story, if, if you'll allow me, before we get a few closing <laughs> remarks. The pre-closing to the closing. Uh, there was a lady who served with her husband and of course they had their family there. She was pregnant when they went in Siberia. Among a people group, we'll call them the B people group because for security concerns and we'll call her Miss A. Miss A uh, shared with us a story of resilience on the field and how if you go with expectations that everything's gonna be peachy and good and don't expect suffering and hardship you will be steamrolled. You won't be in the ministry very long, and you, you have uh, a lot of surprises in store. Um, it was cold. She didn't like it. People didn't smile. Uh, there were all kinds of reasons <laughs> to, to not, in the world, to not uh, enjoy her time. Well, she got really sick, and they went, had an ultrasound of the baby, said, hey, it's going to be a son. He's going to die next. And so, obviously, that was like, no, not next. (laughs) What do I do? And he starts telling, uh, the doctor, the lady doctor, starts telling her that um, she probably needs to go to Moscow. uh, But she can't get to Moscow because if she tries to fly, she'll probably uh, die or the baby would die. And so, she tells her husband they go to the passport office, try to get their passports to leave. This lady won't let them leave. And it, this long drawn out story of eventually a KGB, ex-KGB, now mafia head, helped them get out. <laughs> and, uh, and it turns out the lady was illegal, illegally detaining them when they got back to Michigan uh, to you know to check on the baby. The doctors they're telling the doctor the story, and the doctor's like, "Wow, works out pretty good because had you been able to leave in this time frame, your baby." would be dead. Had you gotten on an airplane from this week to this week, there was no way your son was stable enough. And now that you've come here now, like, your, your son will surely live. But there was a window of time that they couldn't get out. And that window of time is what basically saved their son's life. And, you know, during that time, she started evaluating her attitude. And this is this is pretty unique. They lived way out in the middle of nowhere, Russia, you know. And there's this big—it's the world's largest head of linen. Huge. Everywhere you go in the city, you can see it. Remember Artemis? <laughs> like that. And she said, literally, it felt like the eyes were just like on you everywhere you go. And uh, she she came back with a new attitude. You know, just thankful that they would have one more day, that maybe there would be one life saved out of them going through what they had gone through and making it back there and thanking God for their son. And her perspective had had changed, and she said that that giant head no longer struck fear into her. Even though it was the same size, it cast the same shadow, it was the same, it, it had all the same implications with it. It didn't scare her like that. And it was all a work of the Spirit. It was all what God had done. And I want to, you know, propose to you this morning that that's what our fear is like, this big looming thing that's, you know, just hanging there watching us. Uh, The Spirit can energize us, can fulfill us, can give us a perspective change that will look at that thing that's still the same, it hasn't changed, and say, you know, I grieve as one who has hope. Um, I'm not fearful. I'm heading, you know, straight on into the suffering. And uh, let me give you five quick applications. I won't read each of these verses. But these are kind of the main thrusts, the main things Paul is telling Timothy to do as a result of this fanning the flame in the letter first Timothy 1 uh, 14 I, I'm sorry second Timothy 114 guard the deposit how are you going to do this like you know when 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 the new pastor comes whoever he is whenever that is uh, how are you, you've become a pastoring people you've learned to nurture each other to look out for each other to even like you were talking about going by and inviting people To to come in, going by and seeing them like a lot of people would call that pastoral visits. When he comes, don't stop, don't stop doing that. Don't like say you know oh I'm outsourcing that to the professional Christian. Continue to be a people who guard the deposit, who look out for each other, who take care of the truth that's been given you, and then hold fast to that truth. Second Timothy one thirteen. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith, in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Re- repeat it here. Repeat it in your Sunday schools. Repeat it at your work, in your home. Be a people of the word. Be men and women of the book. That's the only way you're going to hold fast to Scriptures. You can't hold fast to something you don't know. You start somewhere. If that, I know this church has a rich, rich history of Bible teaching. Uh, but as individuals cling to this word. Number three, uh, proclaim it. Again, preach the message. All these things take authoritative power, love, and self-discipline that all comes through Christ. The same grace that he gave to Timothy, he gives, and gave to Paul, he gives to us. And you know that that part about us not choosing it and him choosing us, and him choosing us before the foundation of the world—that should give us incredible, incredible confidence to proclaim the message. That it's really not us; it's not on us; it's not from us; it's all God and motivated to and for Him and His glory. Think through these things. How are we going to do this well? What because. When, when the person comes, when the pastor comes, it will be on you. It will still be on you, much like we've seen in this letter, to guard the teaching. To help him raise up leaders. To, you know, go out there. And there may be unsaved neighbors that you have that one day pastor this church. Or one day go to places like Ephesus modern-day Turkey. Number four, do not be ashamed, verses 8 and and 16. Uh, Again, we got these looming idols, uh, looming fears, whatever they are, whatever, if it's the world, the culture, or your own personal things within. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Give those fears to God. Release them. Acknowledge them, release them, give them to God, but don't be ashamed of the gospel. Ask him for the power. That's the thing. He'll give you the power to, to, to squelch down that shamefulness. And then number five, take part in your suffering. And this one is found in verse, uh, ch- chapter one, verse eight, chapter two, verse three, chapter three, verse 12, and chapter four, verse five. It's kind of a hard word to end on, but it's the one that's mentioned in every single chapter all the way through the book. You will face suffering and we don't know what it'll look like it'll be different for everybody but of all these promises and the promises in scripture you won't see that printed on a mug probably or like on a calendar you will face suffering but Paul wants you to be prepared for it he wants you to go into it as a soldier as an athlete as a farmer as a teacher who's prepared to stick to the course and face the end So don't go into it blindly, like so excited that you lose sight and and don't think soberly. But on the other hand, don't go into it blindly, like guarded by fear, so that you don't think at all, you know, and that you're just simply reacting. Ask God to to carry us into this. And then this is your final charge. Jesus and his spirit in you is what's going to accomplish this. He's the one that built this church. He's the one that planted it. He's the one that has gone through all these growth stages that you've been through. Planting, uh, maybe weeding out at different times, nurturing, uh, reproducing. Maybe even at times you felt like it's wilting. He's the one. He's the gardener. He's the one getting you through it. Steward the gift that's entrusted to you. And let's not become another story like Ephesus. Let's not become a missionary field that people are sending generations from now, sending workers, missionaries here. Let's be sending out missionaries from Ald's Chapel, from Downsville. You know, who are we? Followers of Christ. We get to dream that way. We get to have visions that God will use this city, this region for his global purposes.